as many of you know, Buddhist geeks died in 2016. And we even put it to rest with a death poem, which if you haven't read, um, you might find interesting. And even as that happened, uh, I had the feeling that this may not be final, certainly felt final at the time. And now that I reflect back, it sort of needed to feel final for me. I'll talk a little bit more about that, hopefully, here. But what I wanted to share is that within this sort of Buddhist story that Buddhist Geeks has been part of, even though it's derided pretty much universally um, by modern people, the notion of rebirth or reincarnation is an intimate part of the Buddhist narrative. And so even as Buddhist Geeks was dying and we were throwing dirt onto its grave, burning it in the pyre, I sort of knew that there was a possibility um, that it could be reborn and that it would be totally consistent with the story of Buddhism. And part of the reason I think it had to die is that the story of Buddhism itself is rather limiting. And I wanted to share a bit about the journey that I've been through in the last few years with Buddhist geeks and also share some of the possible future uh, futures that could be emerging with this currently dead but possibly stirring from the Bardo project. Maybe we could start with the idea of Bardo. I think many of you who are familiar with Tibetan Buddhism know there's this term bardo, which is used to describe that space or state in between lives. It's literally translated as the intermediate state or the transitional state or the in-between state. In the Tibetan Buddhist metaphysics, whatever it is that's reborn, some conscious continuity that's also simultaneously impermanent. Somehow moves between lives and there is some sort of continuity between those different lives. Although, as Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche pointed out, on his teachings on reincarnation, he said, I have some good news and some bad news about reincarnation. The good news is that it happens. The bad news is that it never happens to you. So there's a big question there as to what is it that gets reborn anyway? And that's been a question people have been asking for a long time. In the case of a project, uh, it becomes even more interesting in a way. And in order to talk about Buddhist Geeks as a project and its rebirth, its potential rebirth, and what it means to be in the bardo, I thought I'd share a little bit of the story that I've yet to share with anyone outside of my very close group of private friends and mentors and colleagues. 
it's one that I wasn't really ready to share because it was still too close to home and still too um, raw and intimate. Uh, essentially, having started Buddhist Geeks back when I was in my early 20s and then having run it for 10 years, being the primary person behind the project, although I started it with Ryan Olke and then later Gwen Bell came on and a number of people have been part of the project. I've, st I've been the sort of consistent um, face and personality behind it. And one of my mentors who uh, supported Buddhist Geeks and has supported me a lot named Jerry Colonna, he's a business coach and has worked um, in tech startups and is also the president at Naropa University. He shared with me that anytime someone starts a company or starts a project, and I think this applies equally as well to um, becoming a parent um, or to becoming deeply involved or falling in love with a tradition or uh, even, even a hobby, something that's really important to us, when we really put our full energy behind something, our creative energy, when we become in love with it, we fall in love, we immerse ourselves in something, we merge with that. So in order to start Buddhist Geeks, I had to merge with Buddhist Geeks. And for those of you who've done anything like this, you, you know what that's like. Um, when the thing is not doing well or when it seems like something bad has happened, it's not just that it's happening to this thing, to the project or to your child or to something outside of you, it's happening to you to me. And that's because we have become one with it to some degree. Our identity is tied to it. Now, this is weird in the context of Buddhism, because on the one hand, Buddhists talk endlessly about non-identification, about letting go of one's identity um, be being fixed somewhere. On the other hand, Buddhists also talk about especially in the Zen tradition, becoming one with things. And so what I found is that in order to really fully do something, I do have to become one with it. I do have to merge with it. And at some point, and this is something that Jerry pointed out, anytime someone starts a project and merges with it, at some point, if that project fails or if things change or if they change, then because we have become one with it, we also have to become uh, separated from it. We have to lose it. We have to grieve and become disillusioned by that loss. Because we've become one, we have to let go. And so for me, this process happened with Buddhist Geeks. And for the last few years of the project, I was going through a very intense at times, um, painful at times, uh, disillusionment with the project and more broadly with Buddhism itself. When I started Buddhist Geeks, I was really into Buddhism. Um, and I'd been practicing for a few years meditation and um, I was at Naropa University studying Buddhism, essentially was my major, my focus. And I was in love with it. And that was what I meant by being a Buddhist geek. Like I was really geeky about Buddhism. As the project progressed, uh, my understanding and my relationship to Buddhism also went through 
changes. And part of that change, which I've described at times, is that I started getting less interested in Buddhism and more interested in the intersections of Buddhism with other domains and areas. And as that progressed, um, if you look back or listen back over through the 300 and something episodes of Buddhist Geeks, uh, there's a general move away from Buddhism toward talking to people, interviewing people who their domain expertise really was outside of Buddhism. And so it became much more an exploration about how is the modern world changing Buddhism? What does the modern world have to offer Buddhism as opposed to what does Buddhism have to offer the world? And the logical conclusion to that for me was actually, I don't think Buddhism has as much to offer the world as we thought. Um, that in fact, Buddhism is a deeply flawed um, set of traditions. And let me be clear, Buddhism isn't one thing, it's many, many, many things. And I don't even know the full scope of what falls underneath that header. And I don't claim to. But I do know a decent amount about what it's like in America and in the West and how it's practiced here in what are called convert communities, people who uh, did not grow up in a Buddhist context, particularly in Asia. And I know that there's a lot of beauty in the Buddhist tradition and the way it's practiced, and there's a lot of silliness. <laughs> uh, let me be a little more clear about what I mean by that. Um, part of what I've seen is really common both in myself and among practitioners who become interested in a Buddhist tradition is that just like I described with starting Buddhist Geeks, people become immersed in the stories, the narratives, the, the teaching stories, the koans, the practices, the history, the personalities, the teachers. We, when we become Buddhists, we t put on the cloak of Buddhism and we become one with that world. We get what's there in terms of the benefits and the upsides and the insights and the awakenings, actually. And that's often what people describe as the path of awakening, is becoming immersed with those stories and that way of practicing and, and then coming to realize what it is pointing to, what the Buddha was pointing to or some other enlightened person was pointing to. And I can say with a lot of honesty that I found that. I found certain kinds of awakenings and enlightenments in my own process of unfolding. And I saw it in my peers and my teachers and later in my students. And there's something quite beautiful about the way that Buddhist enlightenment or Buddhist awakenings um, take shape. I think it's worth uh, continuing to remember what that tradition has to offer. That said, there is an inherent process of delusion 
I think, when we become one with something. Because in order to become one with something, we have to become separated from other things. Or as the philosopher, the German philosopher Heidegger put it, there's a process of revealing and concealing that happens simultaneously. We see something, and in the seeing of something, wherever we're standing looking, there's automatically a blind spot in that position. We can't see what's behind us. We can't see from where we're seeing. So anytime we immerse ourselves in a tradition of practice, of knowing the world, of knowing ourselves, we are simultaneously seeing something new. We're awakening to something and we're simultaneously missing something else, becoming deluded to something else, ignorant of something. And where I stand right now, what I see right now is that that is unavoidable. It's unavoidable to merge with the thing we love and to miss out on all of the other things that we could be loving. To gain a unique vantage point and perspective, but also to be limited by that unique vantage point and perspective. It's unique, meaning there are not that it's the only important or valuable one, but that there are other important and valuable ones. So I've seen many people get into Buddhism, fall in love with it, become one with it. And for some, that's it. Um, they sort of are, that's what they become. That's what they are. For others, um, like myself, we might go through a process of disillusionment, um, of finding the edges and the limitations. And for me, doing Buddhist geeks, becoming one with it, talking to all these different people, that's part of what brought me to this place, was seeing that really no, one, <laughs> no one's understanding of what, uh, what Buddhism was, why it was important, how to apply it to, to, to life, no one really agreed fundamentally on those questions. No one agreed on what enlightenment was. Um, even two of my favorite teachers who practiced together and studied with the same teachers and did many of the same practices to this day, when we talk about enlightenment or awakening, they don't agree on what it is. And I don't agree with either of them. <laughs> Not totally. Um, And so there's something inherently contradictory about planting a flag, as Kenneth Folk, one of my teachers, talks about planting a flag in this understanding or this awakening that arises from Buddhism, or can arise, one of the many plurality of awakenings that can arise. And to me, that gets back to a kind of bigger picture point about awakening and, and how I now understand it, which is that awakening isn't a Buddhist thing. It's, it's a, maybe not even a human thing. It's a life thing. Um, it's a description of a process that can happen whereby we see things we haven't seen before and then we become something new.
when I was first getting into Buddhist practice, I was also reading a lot from a philosopher named Ken Wilber. And for those that know Ken Wilber, um, people tend to either hate him or love him. I've both done both. But one of the things that has stood in my mind throughout these years, um, having read his work, is what he called lineage mind. This is another of the things that I found to be problematic with becoming identified with a Buddhist approach or orientation. Ken described lineage mind as what happens when people confuse or conflate their lineage and the wisdom of their lineage with some sort of ultimate truth. I really think of lineage these days as being, um, as one teacher put it, like a family recipe or like a provincial cuisine. It's something that has been developed over time, refined, passed along, and has its own unique taste and flavor to it that can be quite extraordinary, particular, particularly if you have some sort of nostalgic connection to it. But any type of cuisine, any family recipe that one receives, certainly no one would claim, I think, that it that it describes the penultimate accomplishment of cooking for the human species or for, you know, for the universe. And yet that's often what we do when we become identified with our lineage, with our traditions. We, we really think that what we're doing is the best thing. It's the most ultimate, the most awakened, the most inclusive, the most whatever. And this is again, not to deride the real wisdoms and values and benefits and yumminess of particular lineages and traditions. But it's just to acknowledge that, no, of course, our lineages aren't the best. There might be things about them which are quite good, but um, there's also going to be shadow sides, downsides, um, delusions which are embedded in these traditions, limitations which are embedded in them taking the recipe or cuisine metaphor a little further. There's a show that my wife and I have been watching um, since it came out on Netflix called chef's table and chef's table isn't sort of a normal cooking show. They actually in each episode kind of present a story of the, of the chef, their life and how they became one of the top chefs in the world. And one of the common patterns watching that show and seeing different episodes is that almost all of these chefs chefs trained in a particular tradition. Um, oftentimes it was like the classical cuisine of French or Italian cooking. And for some people it was the cuisine of their homeland, like in one case it was uh, Indian cuisine. But in all cases... There was not a single chef who just simply perfected those cuisines or continued to present the same thing but better. Um, in all cases, every single one, these chefs combined in an unorthodox way or hybridized or um, mixed together in a way that brought about something new um, 
a new type of cuisine, whether it was the combination of classical French cooking with Indian cuisine or modern cooking with Thai cuisine. In, in every case, the story of these chefs are that they learned the thing, at some point realized that it didn't quite fit them or it wasn't an ex full expression of, of who they were, and then they broke outside of the classical cuisine in an often very difficult process, found some way to reimagine or reconstruct a new way of cooking that was uniquely them, but clearly influenced uh, by the different traditions and lineages that they had come into contact with and, and had worked on mastering. So what I found so interesting about that is that it really struck a chord for myself in terms of looking at my own history with Buddhism and having you know, studied in certain traditions and gone really deep, deeply into certain practices and approaches. And then at some point feeling like, no, this isn't quite, this isn't quite it. Um, there's something here that's amazing and beautiful, but it doesn't fully express or fully encapsulate what intuitively I know to be bigger or truer about life. My last uh, talk at the last Buddhist Geeks conference was called Buddhism Unbundled. And in that talk, I went into the ways in which I think that Buddhism is becoming um, unbundled, becoming uh, the elements of it are being pulled apart. Um, the way that it's unraveling in the information age, the way that things like mindfulness are being pulled apart and offered in new ways and at, uh, at new scales that Buddhism couldn't and will never do. And this unbundling process isn't just happening with Buddhism, it's happening across the board with every area of human knowledge and every historical tradition. Chef's Table kind of goes into and explores one of those areas, you know, of fine dining, of um, cooking. But it's happening here with meditation, with Buddhism too. In fact, meditation, if you look at Buddhism and one way of understanding what Buddhism is, you could say from a classical perspective, Buddhism is the three trainings. The three trainings of morality, concentration, and insight, or meditation, ethics, and wisdom. There's different translations, different ways of understanding what these three trainings are. But in early Buddhism, this was considered kind of the fundamental formulation of what made Buddhism unique. And meditation being one way of understanding one of those trainings has been and is being unbundled from Buddhism and has been for probably more than a century or two since modern times. And for me, I found that that was um, the area of Buddhism that I was most interested in and still am most interested in. When I started teaching meditation, um, 2010, 
I did so from a very Buddhist perspective and taught what I'd learned, how to practice Vipassana and how to go through these stages of insight, how to do concentration practice and jhana practice and the things I'd learned in the Theravada tradition. As I went further and further into it, I started working with more people, started exploring these things for myself more, these questions of what is it that I'm teaching? What do people need? As I talked to Ken McLeod, who mentioned that, pointed out that every person who started a tradition always uh, teaches what they've learned in terms of what was an appropriate response to the deepest questions they had. You know, you could say for the Buddha, it was the question of what is suffering and how do I stop suffering? Or, you know, breaking outside the Buddhist tradition in the Hindu tradition, you had the sage Ramana Maharshi, whose question was, who am I? And in every case, they had these deep fundamental questions that brought them through a process of seeking and discovery and then a ultimately and eventually to some sort of awakening that they then systematized and expressed and became their quote-unquote lineage. But everyone's questions are slightly different. Maybe if you formulated them, they'd look the same, but what goes into them, the presumptions, that our life experience, our unique vantage point is different in some way. And so I think it's probably more accurate to say that if we're really following our deepest questions, instead of trying to realize someone else's answers to those questions from the past, then there are going to be as many expressions of lineage as there are people who are expressing them. Now, some of these expressions are going to be quite similar, um, quite close even when I've cooked my grandmother's recipes, her squash, stuffed squash, for instance, which I cooked recently, or my grandfather's hummus, um, it tastes like what they cook, but it's not the same. We add our own understanding and our own limitations to the mix. And so for, for me, I started to realize that this was true and that I couldn't honestly operate under the heading of Buddhism without, in some sense, um, qualifying it that Buddhism as an umbrella term doesn't quite capture what it is that I'm doing and I'm interested in. Even as I count the number of books on my bookshelf that are Buddhist, it's less than 50%. So less than 50% of my influence is Buddhist. Um, if, if just looking in terms of books and, and learning and reading and interest. Now it's probably like 40%, so it's pretty high. But I can't really honestly say that I'm Buddhist. Um, I've noticed on Twitter recently that people have all of these really complex hyphenated identities right there. Um, not just Buddhist or not just vegan or not just whatever, but it's like vegan slash Buddhist slash libertarian slash progressive slash, you know, it, it just, there's, there's all of these sort of hyphenated identities 
people don't want to be put into a single box because they aren't in a single box. We're so deeply influenced by all these unbundled elements uh, that the information age has has um, unraveled for us. We're all trying to make sense of all of these bits of human knowledge, it seems like, that are now coming, have come apart and are now coming back together in new ways. And it's good that they're coming back together. Um, personally, I think it's very good that these uh, that this unbundling has happened. I know a lot of people are grieving the loss of Buddhism um, as a as a as an institution or as a meta story. I mean, I don't think it's going to go away, but certainly Buddhism as this mega institution, just like every other mega institution from the past, has lost its potency and power in the digital age. There are always going to be uh, conservers, people who try to preserve the the stories and the realizations and the lifestyles that these historical institutions describe. I remember reading a book by Kevin Kelly called What Technology Wants, and he pointed out that even that almost every technology is still preserved by a small group of people. He pointed out that there's a, a type of uh, rifle called the Kentucky Flint rifle that was developed in the 1700s. And there's still a small group. I mean, maybe it's just like a dozen or so people, these enthusiasts who keep the Kentucky Flint rifle alive. They continue to have it produced. They continue to fire it. They know all about it. They come and hang out and shoot their, you know, 1700s guns together. Uh, and it's true of all of these different technologies and institutions um, that some humans just for whatever reason, they love these things and they want to preserve them and conserve them. And so for me, recognizing that and seeing that like, oh, someone is going to be conserving and preserving most of what's been uh, taught in Buddhism, or they'll go back and refine it. That freed me up. Uh, that freed the progressive or innovative part of me up to experiment and explore, not worry about my job being to preserve Buddhism or conserve it or defend it. Um, and then much, much more my interest became in how to innovate uh, off of Buddhism, how to build off of what it's offered um, to respond appropriately, which is actually a Buddhist concept, to respond appropriately to what's arising in my life, my world, the world I see. And I'm not claiming to be doing that correctly or um, to have it figured out in any in any sense. But I am clear that there's a very big difference between development on the one hand and evolution on the other. When we develop, say as a child develops through what Jean Piaget described as the stages of childhood cognitive development, from pre-formal to concrete to post-formal stages of understanding, there's a sequence there that's pretty reliable and pretty predictable even across different cultures. But that development is based in 
at least 50,000 years of human development, at least since language was developed. And it certainly wasn't a guaranteed outcome from the point of view of evolution. Evolution doesn't guarantee outcomes. It just guarantees a process by which life adapts to new situations. And so getting clear on this distinction has also been really helpful for me in terms of seeing how to move forward. Because I don't presume that there is some sort of final enlightenment or even enlightenments that um, human beings are destined to go through. I think instead that what enlightenment or awakening is best described as is an evolutionary process of responding to the situation. And it's something that all human beings are doing through whatever lineages they're part of. Every lineage, every human area of knowledge is ultimately about awakening. I'm going to make that claim. <laughs> um, and even deeper than that, I think life is about awakening. I remember on one of my last long retreats where I ended up having this sort of, even now looking back, was a really significant shift in my understanding of practice and meditation. There was a feeling afterwards of really having let go of a certain kind of seeking or wanting to be somewhere and recognizing, no, in fact, like what it is I've been seeking for is this. There's nothing outside of this experiential reality other than this. And that was a significant understanding and realization at the time. But what came with it almost immediately as well was a huge frustration, irritation, anger even, that the tradition I'd been practicing in, which helped me see this, was also sort of simultaneously being propri proprietary about this realization, as if it could be accurately described and contained within a text or a book or by particular people, or that certain models or frameworks were big enough to hold this understanding. And it just seemed absurd to me on the surface of things that that was the case. This realization, which was part of my living experience, seemed so clearly to not be containable. Um, it was not something I could put into words accurately, even though I think do, doing so is a good exercise, trying to do so. And so the idea that something could contain it or own it um, in some proprietary way, which is what many traditions claim, just seemed on the surface like, bullshit. And I'd say that was really the fracture, the point at which I started to fall out of love with Buddhism. It, in a sense, had led, it led me to a place, uh, it helped me get to a place that then undermined itself. And that process of dying, of letting go of Buddhism, 
and also of Buddhist geeks because I'd become one with Buddhist geeks. And uh, as I started to teach meditation more and want to innovate and find my own voice and approach, as I did that with my wife, teaching partner, Emily, we suddenly realized we couldn't do this through Buddhist geeks. We couldn't um, do this even under the heading of Buddhism, that what we wanted to teach and what we wanted to do uh, couldn't be contained by that and shouldn't be contained by that. And because we'd been teaching through Buddhist geeks, um, we decided that we need to shift that. And so that's when we started a new project called meditate.io. And for us, meditation was a much more appropriate um, heading for the work that we were doing. In that same process, uh, I felt that I just had to let go of Buddhist geeks entirely, that Buddhism had really, in so many ways, disappointed and failed me. And I saw, looking around at the Buddhists, I knew that it also seemed to be disappointing um, for many of them, or that um, their confidence in it was not warranted in terms of its actual impact on their lives and the world around them. And I could say definitely that I've felt quite cynical um, about Buddhism. And maybe there's still some cynicism there. But that said, after letting go of Buddhist geeks, after really having some space and distance from it, at least this past little more than a year, I quickly sort of found myself uh, undertaking a new form of practice, I um, found myself gravitating to teachings on embodied awareness and found that uh, the teachings of Reggie Ray, uh, who studied with Chagyam Trungpa, were exactly what I needed in order to continue my own process. And it was really weird to come to that realization after letting go of Buddhism and Buddhist geeks publicly um, to then start falling back in love with a very Buddhist oriented approach. Now Reggie's himself an eclectic teacher and he pulls from a lot of different sources and that's part of why I found I could tolerate <laughs> his teaching. But still all the same, there's a very strong Buddhist element there and it made me realize, oh yeah, there's still more in that Buddhist world that's valuable. There's still a connection there and some part of me still loves it. And so I found myself uh, starting to develop a new relationship to Buddhism over these last several months. And I've told my wife for the last few years that I love, hate her. <laughs> And I don't, for those of you who have been in long-term relationships, um, perhaps you know this experience. Um, certainly people that have had kids <laughs> know this experience. Wherein uh, we get to know someone so well that we sort of go through a process of falling in and out of love many times <laughs> with them. And we know them so well that we know all the things about them that are neurotic and, you know, their shadow sides and the ugly sides uh, of the, of their personality and of their histories. We know 
the full expression in some sense of who they are. Not the total full expression, but a lot of it, enough to start to really realize, oh, I both love this person and I almost, I also simultaneously hate this person. Like this person, I cannot stand this person at times. They drive me nuts. And yet I love them so much. I care about them so deeply. I want their happiness um, so fully. And both are true. It's not one or the other. It's not the old Disney um, dichotomy. It's both and. And I've been telling my wife this for a while, and she, I think, feels the same way. (laughs) Um, And I suddenly realized that it's the same with Buddhism. I love, hate Buddhism. I have this very mixed relationship with it where I know enough about it to see that there's so much beauty there. And I know enough about it to see that there's so much bullshit there. And I can't, at this point, say one of those is more true or truer than the other. They are both and true. And so the stirring from the bardo, the stirring from the in-between is really about, for me, coming into a new kind of complex relationship with what the Buddhist tradition now in the 21st century is, what it how it's changing, what it's offering, what's dying, what's being unbundled, untangled, remixed, reformed into a plethora of new and different expressions, some of which are appropriate to call Buddhist and many of which are not. And so I find myself back in this position of wanting to engage in that conversation. And for me, it's moved also in the last 10 years from being a process of learning from the experts, of interviewing the experts, to really wanting to have conversations with other people who have expertise, but also don't know everything um, and don't know many of the things that I know. And so simultaneously in this love-hate relationship, my orientation to, for instance, doing this Buddhist Geeks podcast and talking to other people has moved from being about interviewing the experts and learning from them to being in conversation and communion with others, learning from them and teaching both. Which feels like a much more accurate description of what life is like. So this stirring from the bardo is really me wanting to share my story, um, which because has been merged with Buddhist geeks is also in some ways the story of Buddhist geeks is not the whole story. And just to say that um, there is something new on the horizon. There's something new coming. Um, There's, I have a sense of what that might look like. Um, There's a new series of conversations I want to have. There's a new topic that I want to go in depth with. I'm not quite ready to share what that topic is yet, but I will share that. It's a topic like most of the other ones with Buddhist geeks that have been most interesting. It's a topic that feels like needs 
to be discussed more or discussed in new ways, which either has been repressed in some way because it's taboo or because it's been talked about only in a single way. There's been a consensus about how we should talk about this topic and what it means in the Buddhist context or in simply the context of life. And it's one of those topics. It's one of those things that feels like it's, uh, it's sort of, it's due for some disruptive energy, a little push. Um, it's due for more clarity, um, for new ways of looking at things. And it's been something that I've personally been exploring for a number of years, but have yet to um, do much with, talk much about publicly. Um, because it's a kind of a taboo. So that's coming, um, more than likely. <laughs> and with that, um, we will also be looking at how to make the Buddhist Geeks project, in particular the podcast, something that, um, can be supported and, to use a business term, monetized um, in a way that makes it possible to have this project continue into the future if that's what, um, in fact, wants to happen. I say wants to happen because uh, obviously I and others that would participate in these conversations would want it, want it to happen and also you the listener, the person who's engaging with Buddhist geeks and considering some of these ideas and taking them in and having them inform your own process that you would also need to want that. So um, we'll be figuring that out as we go. And more than likely, uh, the next time you hear from us uh, will be to kind of ask some questions about what it is that you'd like to see Buddhist geeks be and become and what um, things you would find valuable in terms of what that what the podcast might look like. And we've got some ideas that I think are pretty exciting, and podcasting has changed so much in the last, since we started, 2006. Um, there's so many new technologies um, that speed things up and make it easier, and there's so many new and novel ways to... Um, uh, raise funds for and 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 get support for these kind of creative projects when there's people that care about them. So we'll be reaching out soon um, via email to ask some questions about that. If you want to be part of that process, that creative process of figuring out what the podcast will look like, then f please go to BuddhistGeeks.com and sign up for the Buddhist Geeks newsletter. Many of you probably are already on it, but if you're not, please come check it out. And I just want to thank, um, thank you for being willing to consider this, especially if you've gotten this far. <laughs> um, I hope this is relevant to some of you. I suspect it might be. Um, if Buddhist Geeks is something you found valuable, I think that this next iteration or generation of Buddhist Geeks will continue to be valuable. 
Um, although I can't promise that I will be as uh, reverent to the tradition. I may be more irreverent. Um, I may not sound like a Buddhist at times. And I think that's also appropriate in this conversation. So uh, I will not apologize for that. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, listen to this. And again, we're looking forward to the next stages of, of Buddhist Geeks unfolding. Um, it's not clear to me yet whether that's going to be a developmental unfolding or an evolutionary one. I suspect the latter. Um, but again, thank you for um, all your support and for uh, being part, if you're interested, of this next unfolding of Buddhist geeks. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist geeks network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.